The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. David is kind of a big deal. In fact, he might be such a big deal that if you are new to the Bible, when you read the Bible, you, you might not even realize that the David talked about in several different places is the same David. Like, there are that many accomplishments throughout the life of David that when you're reading, you, you might not even realize that those are connected. David is a giant slayer. He's a songwriter. David is, is king. In fact, Jesus himself is even referred to as the son of David. All of those are the, are the same David. See, in the storyline of the Bible, whether you're Christian or not, what, what you'll find is that David is a key piece in the story of the scriptures. And what's interesting about that is in the midst of all of these attributes and accomplishments of David, the things that make him a so-called hero, David is also a deeply flawed and broken person. See, David is a big deal, but he's also a train wreck. He's a giant slayer, but, he, but he's also a failure. He's a songwriter, but also a murderer. He's a king, but also an adulterer. Yet even in the midst of all of this, the book of Acts would end up recording later about the life of David in Acts chapter 13, that David is a man after God's own heart. And so today what I want us to do is to dive into what is it that actually makes David a man after God's own heart? What can we learn through the life of David about what God is doing? I'm in the phase of parenting where my kids like to copy us, right? So my, my youngest, my, my daughter, Alice, she's, she's kind of in the baby phase, and so she's copying sounds and noises, maybe a couple words here and there. My oldest, Elijah, he, he's an early elementary phase, and so he, he'll like to copy all kinds of things. Sometimes he'll like to copy every single thing we do to the point where people are screaming in the back seat, stop copying me, right? So, so he's in this imitation phase or... Um, when, we, when he gets dressed in the morning, he wants to know, what, what am I wearing? What are we wearing as a family? Can we all look like the Incredibles together? Right? It's in this, this phase where, we want, where he wants to copy. He wants us all to look the same. My daughter, Emmy, who's, who's four, she, the way she likes to do imitation, she likes to play what she calls people. Um, now, playing people means like she, she likes to have her own family. And so she's the mom, and she likes to make sure that I'm the dad. She wants to be married to me, and then my wife is her daughter, and then our, and then our our other kids are her kids also. And so she loves to do this, though, because she wants to be like my wife. She wants to imitate her, her mannerisms, and she wants to imitate what it would be like for her to have a family of our own just like hers. Now, what's interesting is we see kids do this kind of thing all the time, right? They imitate us, sometimes the good things, sometimes the bad things. But what they do when they imitate us is there's something they see in us that they want to be true of them. Right? There's something in our actions, in the way we look, in the way we, we behave, in, in our own hearts, that they want to be true of them. Now, what's interesting about this is this is actually central to what the Bible describes as discipleship. Right? When the Bible describes discipleship, certainly it has information as a piece of that. But also key to that is imitation, that we are copying other people, that we are following. And as we follow God, we are imitating. We're imitating the heart of God, the behavior of God, the things that God says in fact, the Apostle Paul, when he would write to his church, he, he told them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, as he's leading the church, he's saying, I want you to follow me because I'm following Jesus. And so I'm going to copy what Jesus says, what Jesus does, what Jesus' heart is. And he says, if you want to have a heart after God, copy me, copy what I say, copy what I do. 
And so when we look to the scriptures, and the scriptures tell of David being a man after God's own heart, what it is speaking of is David is imitating something that is true of the heart of God, that he, wa- that he wants to be true in his own life. Something that is true in the heart of God, that us as followers of Jesus, that we are trying to imitate as well. That we are trying to imitate the, the love and the grace and the compassion of Jesus. And so when we look at the life of David, what we'll find is that we find some descriptors of how God interacts with David, how God chooses David, that tell us what God is doing, what is the heart of God, and how God decides to go about his work in the world. If you could open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 426. Now in this section of scripture, what we'll find is this is when, when God chooses David. And so God's going to have all, all Jesse's sons lined up, and he's going to tell, tell Samuel who he wants to choose to be, become the new king. Now, in order to help us a little bit, I want to give a little bit of context to that. And so before we jump into chapter 16, what we'll find is that, is that when David enters into the scene here in chapter 16, it's actually right on the heels of getting a clear picture of why Saul isn't a king after God's own heart. See, what we see is 1 Samuel chapter 15 and we, we get a juxtaposition where we see Saul looks like this. Saul behaves this way. Saul has this kind of heart. And then God doesn't like that, so he's going to choose a different kind of king with a different kind of heart. And so in 1 Samuel 15, which is right before all this that we're going to read, Saul is given a prophecy through Samuel. And so we'll see Samuel in this, who the book is named after. Samuel is, is, is God's mouthpiece. He's telling the people what, what God sees, who God is choosing, And so he speaks to Saul and says this in in chapter 15. He says, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. All right, which seems a little bit harsh, and we'll unpack that in just a minute. Um, but, But it gets even more specific than that, not just go and attack them, but it says, do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, this could be one of those sections of scripture, whether you're new with us or, or whether you've been around the church a long time, there are often these moments in scripture, you're like, all right, how do you explain this? Like, what kind of God is this? Why would God do something like this? Now, what's interesting here, though, is when we begin to understand the, the world uh, of Samuel and what God is doing when God specifically directs Saul to, to attack the Amalekites, is God is showing something important about his heart and the kind of heart he wants in his king. See, the Amalekites are an evil people. They're wicked, vicious, oppressive people. This is not like just going after a neighboring nation so that you can conquer and have a bigger emperor, a bigger reign. This is about God sees wickedness happening and he needs a king who is going to fight for the oppressed. Right? God is looking for a king who is going to bend his heart towards the vulnerable. The hurting people. It's the equivalent of, of a Nazi-like leadership. And, and so God is using his king Saul and says, all right, we need somebody who's going to fight for those hurting people. And so God gives him some instructions. Now these instructions sound a little bit bizarre to us, but they're very specific because God wants a king who's not going to be like other kings. He wants a king with a heart for people, not for himself. He wants a king with a heart for the vulnerable. And so he gives the instructions and, and he's saying most kings, when they go to war, they say they're fighting for justice, but they're really fighting for themselves. Well, which is interesting because isn't that true in our, our, our own lives? That oftentimes we'll say we're doing something for good, but somewhere down the line, it ends up being self-serving. 
like the line often between, between what is good and what we hate is very thin. And, 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 so, and so what God is, is doing is he's telling Saul, all right, I want you to fight for these people, and I want you to do it not building your own wealth and power. And so when he says take no prisoners, the reason he says take no prisoners is not because he has no mercy, but actually because the reason a king takes prisoners, it's about power, it's about wealth, it's about control. And he says, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're just trying to help hurting people. The reason to kill the livestock, see, you keep livestock to build your own wealth, to build your own kingdom, to build your own power. And so God is telling Saul, I, I want you to do this differently. I want you to actually fight for justice, not for your own power and wealth. And so what does Saul do? He goes to war. He captures the king to hold him ransom, and he, and he keeps the livestock to build his own wealth. See, suddenly we see that, that Saul actually becomes the very thing he's fighting against. The thing that he hates is actually what he becomes. And so the scriptures record this for us to, to show us that, all right, this is Saul who is the king, but he does not have a heart after God's own heart. He is not leading with love and compassion. In fact, he's using his position for evil and for selfish gain. And so we get this clear picture that at this point, they don't have a king with a heart after God. They don't have a king who bends himself to the, the vulnerable. But what God is looking for is God is looking for a king who would use his position and his privilege for the sake of other people. God wants a king with his own, who's after his own heart, who would do what is right. Who would fight for what is right. And so 1 Samuel 16, we now get this picture of this different kind of king and how God is going to look for this king. Because so far it hasn't worked. So far the king they have in place isn't what God wants for the world. And so in chapter 16, I'll begin in verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? All right, so we just heard why God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. He's not leading with the love of God. He's not, he's not fighting for good the way that God wants a king to fight for good. And so God says, I've rejected him. I'm done with him. I'm going to choose a new king who is the kind of king I want. So it says, fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me and the... The one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. All right, let's just stop there for just a minute. See, Samuel takes one look at who's in the room. He sees Eliab and says, oh, well, this is going to be easy. He sees Eliab and he, he says, surely God's anointed is in this place. See, he sees Eliab and he's big. He looks like a warrior. He looks like a fighter. And he says, oh, this, this is going to be no problem. God's anointed must be here. God's new king must be here because he takes one look 
He's taller. He's bigger. He's a warrior. But see, here's the reality that we will begin to see as it, as it continues. God doesn't see what others see. See, see, see he, Samuel looks and he sees the appearances. He sees the outside. He sees the size. Right? He's, just, he's just lining them up and comparing their stats. He said, all right, he's this tall, he weighs this much, he's got this vertical leap, he can run a 40 this fast. Like, all right, this is the guy I want to draft, right? He's got it all figured out. But, but God isn't looking at that. God's trying to look deeper. He's looking at the heart. And in fact, it continues, and God actually says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Which is interesting, because for Samuel, like Samuel's been through this before. It's almost like God is saying, all right, you tried this before. It didn't work out. So God says, I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Which is a good thing we don't do that anymore, right? I mean, I mean isn't it interesting that, I mean, this is thousands and thousands of years ago. And, and, the, and the problem here is that people are stuck looking at the of outward appearances. Which is like, it's like since the beginning of time, because of sin, right, we've been hardwired to look at things that aren't what God looks at. Right, in magazines and TV, online, we're taught, here's what happiness looks like, here's what success looks like, here's what joy looks like, here's, here's, what, here's what beauty looks like. Our world is designed to draw our attention to what's on the outside. To think this about people. This about your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family. And God says that's not how we are going to do things. That's not how the kingdom of God is designed. God says, all right, I know he's big. I know he's tall. But that's not all there is. That's not how I'm choosing what matters to me. And so they keep looking. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab, had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this way. And, and then the writer gets like tired of this, so he doesn't even name the other ones. He says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all you have? Because like, Samuel knows, like, all right, God said somebody's going to be here. We went through everybody. What's going on? So he says, are, are these all the sons you have? This, then Jesse says, they're still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. Now, we have this glamorous picture of David as a shepherd, and, and, and for good reason, right? The scriptures speak of Jesus as the good shepherd. And, but but when, when Jesse says this, he's not like all like warm and fuzzy feelings here. Right? This isn't the picture of David like with his acoustic guitar leaning up against a sheep writing some worship music. No, th- this, is, this is like condescending, like... All right, there, there's one more, but who cares about him? He's, he's the runt, and he's just out with the sheep. And you, like there is, he's the last person that you want to be king. Like, don't bother. But here's the thing. God not only doesn't see what others don't see, he doesn't require what others require. And so there might be a long list of requirements for the kind of king you want. But when, Jesus, when God is choosing, he chooses David, and David doesn't meet those requirements. And not only that, but as we will we'll learn eventually, as we go, look throughout the life of David, not only does he not meet those requirements, he gets less qualified as he goes on. Like he has more, like these huge moral failures that would disqualify him from even being the kind of guy that, that God wants to, to, to lead 
Yet God chooses him. God picks him. And so after Jesse says, so still the youngest, Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent, had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance, handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. See, David is the one. Not because David was tall enough. Not because he's strong enough. Not because he has the right experiences. Simply because that's who God chose. He's not very qualified. He doesn't meet the requirements that other people would have. But that's the point. God doesn't require what others require. See, the world wants a resume, but God doesn't need one. And so David's there with his shaky resume, and God's saying, all right, let's, let's pick him. I, like, he doesn't have the right accomplishment. He doesn't have the right numbers. But, but here's what's crazy. God doesn't need those things, and that doesn't change, like, throughout the Bible. When the disciples start the Christian church, you have this ragtag group of people who argue with each other, who fight with each other, who doubt Jesus, who don't understand anything Jesus taught, and, and who got, and ran away when things got hard. And Jesus says, all right, well, let's choose them. They can start the whole thing. Right? This is how God always works. Even Jesus himself, like on the surface, when people are watching Jesus, like he's the supposed king, and then they, look, they take one look at Jesus at, at, the end of his, at the end of his earthly life, and he's... Hanging on a cross? Like, what kind of king is that? But see, what other people see on the outside, they miss what God is doing. Because Jesus, yeah, he made, maybe didn't look like a king. But in his death, he conquered death. And in his resurrection, he does what no one else can do. See, God doesn't see things the way that we do. And this is important when we, when we think about re, the, the requirements that God doesn't require of us. Because all of us could look at our, our own life and we could, we could create this list, this resume of accomplishments. We probably alongside of that maybe have a ledger list of our own failures. And you might have some good things. You might be able to come up with some good talents and strengths of yours. But if, you, if you're like me, a, a lot of times you, you look at those things and, and you feel like the list, uh, your ledger list of failures is really long, don't you? Like, because you, you know you. You, you, know, you know what's in your heart, and you know the things that you failed to do. Like, we look at our resume, and our re resume, we're not good enough, tall enough, big enough, talented enough. And we know where we've dropped the ball. We know where we didn't measure up. I mean, think about it. Like, if you're a parent, like, if you're a mom, do you ever feel like you're measuring up to the expectations you have of being a good mom? Or, or if you're a dad, do you ever feel like you are giving your kids enough time? If, if you're married, do you ever feel like you are putting your spouse first? That you were really living, like, sacrificially, putting their needs and wants above your own? Like, when you, when you look at just your, your life in general, if you are in your job, as a neighbor, do you ever feel like you're successful enough, talented enough, beautiful enough, good enough? And, and here's what's crazy about those. That's, that's not, those are just looking at, like, just normal, everyday things. We're not even talking about the, like the failures that say, God said this and we did something else. Right? Many of those things aren't even sin things. No, we, we then pile onto that 
Like where God has said, love somebody, with, love me with your heart, soul, and mind, and we just don't do it. Or where God says, love your neighbor, and, you, and we say, nah, I'll, I'll choose myself right now. Like we start then measuring ourselves against the good, holy law of God, and we say, all right, I'm failing over and over and over again. And so when, when, we, when we look at that, like we can't help but ask, well, what, what could God do with a train wreck like me? Because my heart is not after the heart of God. And, and I certainly couldn't be somebody like David. But, but, but here, that's why this is so significant. Because, because what does God do? God chooses David. In verse 13 it says, It says, So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. God chooses David. It's not about his resume. It's not about his accomplishments, and we know it's not about his failures because those are yet to come, and God still calls him in the New Testament a man after God's own heart. Now, here's what's really interesting. See, when we read this section of scripture, we know it's David going into it, so we read it through that lens, but up until verse 13, we actually don't ever know David's name. Like up until verse 13, David, we, we just know that there's some other brother. He's not very good. We don't know his name. Nobody really cares about him. He's not noticed. He's not really even invited into the party. And then in verse 13, that's when we find out David's name. The unnoticed, the uninvited, the unqualified get named by God. David, whose name actually means beloved. So when nobody else noticed him. When nobody else invited him, when when he wasn't qualified to do what what God needs him to do, God notices him, invites him, and gives him the name Beloved, because that's how God sees him when no one else sees him that way. See, I don't know what what situations you face, but but maybe some of you are here today and you've, you've felt like you've not been noticed. God notices. And maybe, and maybe for you, right, you've had these situations where you felt like God wasn't listening, where he didn't hear you, where he didn't show up the way you wanted to. And in the midst of the tears, the confusion, and the heartbreak, God notices you. He gives you a name, not a number. And maybe, or maybe some of you feel like you're uninvited, like, like you got kicked out because you weren't good enough because you didn't say the right things or do the right things. And so, and so you feel like you're out on your own. But when God gives you a name, a name means that he, you are known, that you are valued. So God invites you into his family. Or maybe you feel like you're not qualified because you didn't measure up to what you needed to be to do what God wanted you to do. Or maybe like David, you have these failures, these sins, which rebelled against the heart of God. And so maybe you not only don't feel qualified, but you feel disqualified. And God still names you as his own because he doesn't see what you see. See, what God sees when he looks at our heart is Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of who David is. David is just a small glimpse of what what the ultimate king would be. 
David, Jesus is the anointed one who God chose to come in with his message. And Jesus is unnoticed, he's uninvited, he's unqualified, but he gets named and appointed to do the work of God. And God, when he goes about his ministry, what does he do? He starts finding the people who are on the outside, finding the people who were kicked out, finding the people who weren't good enough, finding the people who were the sinners, and he invites them in. He notices these people who weren't noticed. He invites these people who weren't invited. He, he, he calls these people who aren't qualified. See, when God anoints his leader, which he does in Jesus and ultimately does, which he does in David and ultimately does in Jesus, he gives them a message and a mission. And the mission of Jesus is to save the lost. To come to hurting people, to broken people, to sinful people. People hated it. Yet it was in that work, in his death, and resurrection that Jesus did what no one else could do. And because of Jesus, when God looks at us, when God looks at our hearts, he sees Christ in us. Because the reality for many of us is we could say, all right, well, God, look, not looking at the outward appearance, but looking at the inside, that actually could be worse. Because we can fake it on the outside, but the inside, I, I, we can't fake that. But see, see, here's the truth. For us as Christians, as children of God, Christ lives in us. And so for us, the prayer of David could actually become our prayer. David, David in Psalm 51, after, after rebelling like in, in awful ways against God, he, he writes this prayer and says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Right? He's asking God, God, make my heart clean. And David's prayer can become our prayer. That no matter in what ways we've sinned against God, our heart gets transformed by Jesus. God gives us a heart that trusts not in our own goodness, but in his own. That trusts not in our ability to clean up our lives, but in Jesus' ability to clean our lives. And what will begin to happen in us as we pray that God would clean our heart is the same thing that happened in David. Because when Acts calls David a man after God's own heart, it's not because of David's successes or failures. It's because of God. Because only God can take David and his murderous, adulterous, evil heart and somehow make it a heart after God. And that's exactly what God does with each of us. He takes the brokenness in our own hearts and turns our hearts towards God. And as we pray, create in me a pure heart, O God, God teaches us to see. God gives us a new heart, a heart that sees what he sees. See, when God purifies our heart, we see ourselves as forgiven. Forgiven by God, beloved of God. And when God purifies our heart, we see ourselves as qualified, not as unqualified. Again, not because of what we have done, not because of how we have changed, but simply because of the power of God. And when we start to become people with a heart changed by God, God changes the way we see other people. We begin to see our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends, as people who are made in the image of God. See, to have a heart after God's own heart doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're sinless. To have a heart after God's own heart means to have a heart purified by Jesus. What continually makes David a man after God's own heart isn't his work, it's God's. 
He's the runt, but God chooses him. He's a failure, but God forgives him. He's not qualified, maybe even disqualified, but God qualifies him. He's corrupt and broken, plagued with sin, but God purifies him. What would happen if that happened to us? What would happen if as God's people, we prayed, create in me a pure heart, O God? What would happen if we were forgiven and set free like that? What would happen if, if our hearts were purified? What would happen if God taught us to see what he sees? What if God also gave us a heart that became like the heart of Jesus? A heart that Isaiah would describe when he says, learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow. See, what, think about this question. What if we saw every person like they are made in the image of God? Because as we are given a new heart purified by the love of Jesus, what Jesus will do is he will teach us to see other people as made in the image of God. And as you think about that question, who, maybe, maybe somebody comes to your mind. See, what if we saw every person like they are made in the image of God? Every person. What if we saw every kid, like they are made in the image of God? And, and I, I mean every kid, every good kid, every bad kid, every kid that's in a family wrecked by a divorce, every kid that's been separated from their family at the border, every kid that hasn't been born yet, every kid that seems like they want nothing to do with the family, every kid who's lonely and isolated, every kid who's rebelling. What if every single kid, what if we saw them as someone made in the image of God? What if we saw every teenager that way? Every teenager who's ready to give up on God. Every teenager who's walked out of the church and said, I want nothing to do with it. Every teenager who's depressed, anxious. Every teenager who's cutting. Every teenager who's ready to give up. Every teenager who's trying to be perfect because they believe being perfect will make you happy. Every teenager who's pregnant. Every teenager who's doing exactly what you said was wrong. What if we saw every teenager... Like they are made in the image of God. What if you saw every coworker that way? Not just the coworkers you like, the ones who are lying and cheating, the ones who get on your nerves. What if you saw every mom, every dad, like they're made in the image of God? Even the ones that you disagree with. What if you saw every single parent, like they're made in the image of God? Every divorced parent. Every parent who became a parent too early. What if you saw every race, every person with a disability, every addiction, every religion, every struggle, every doubt? What if we saw every single person like they are made in the image of God? See, what would happen? In the midst of the brokenness that we see, some of that brokenness obvious, some of it hidden. What would happen is we would be joining in on the mission of Jesus. A mission of love and justice. A mission of grace and truth. A message of forgiveness and freedom. See, what would happen is God would be using you as someone with a heart after God's own heart. Not because of your own goodness, but because of God's. And God would be using your heart to reach the heart of someone else.
someone made in the image of God, but lost and in need of the hope that only he has. As we close our time, what I want to do is I want to take a moment to pray like David prayed, a prayer of confession. And in doing so, what I also want to pray is that God would put on our hearts somebody that we need to be reminded that is made in the image of God in need of the love of God. So let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you as people who sin, who fall short every single day. Some of us are very aware of those sins and those failures. Others of us need to be reminded of them. We don't love you with all our heart and soul and mind. We don't love our neighbors the way we're supposed to. Our sin has made a mess of our own lives, of the lives of people we love. So God, we beg you to forgive us. Have mercy on us. God, we pray what David prayed a long time ago. Create in us a pure heart. God, create a pure heart. Renew our spirits. Help us to trust in you. Cleanse us. Renew us. Make us whole. And as you wash every sin, teach us to see what you see. Put someone on our hearts who we haven't loved like we should love. Put someone on our minds that we haven't looked at the way that you looked at. Teach us to see what you see. Teach us to see what you see in ourselves, that we are loved and forgiven by you, and teach us to see what you see in the world around us. Hear us as we pray and confess our sin to you, and as we bring before you names of people who we want to love like you. of Jesus is that when you pray create in me a pure heart oh God Jesus does Jesus makes your heart clean he makes it new Jesus declares to you his promise that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit